Hello and welcome to TLF Gems, a podcast about customer experience and insight from TLF Research. I'm Stephen Hampshire. And I'm Greg Roche. In this episode, we'll be discussing a chapter from our book, Customer Satisfaction. We're doing chapter six, everyone's favourite topic, sampling. It, it probably should be everyone's favourite topic, I think, because <laughs> one of the things that, that I find really remarkable about the, the job that we do as, as researchers is, is the whole thing about statistical inference. So, yeah. you know, by, if you do it properly, if you draw a sample of people or things or whatever, done properly, that allows you to draw conclusions about the entire population from which that sample is drawn. And not only to do that, but to know how accurate the estimates you're making about the population are, um, which is kind of magic, really. It is, and I, I think I'm a little bit tongue-in-cheek saying that. I think it's an area people sort of dismiss quite quickly. But actually, it's quite simple, really. It is just making sure the results are accurate, hmm. you know, and, and I think finding out the causation using numbers to say, hey, if we do X, Y happens is really powerful. And you obviously need some data to do that. Hmm. I think the next chapter we'll talk about collecting that data. But in terms of just, you know, we've talked about asking the right questions. The second part is asking the right questions to the right people. And then in subsequent podcasts, we'll talk in the right way. So it's, it's talking to the right people. It is, absolutely. And it's, as you say, it, it's simple. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean it's easy, and we'll, we'll, hence why there's a whole chapter about it. Yeah. Um, the, the chapter opens by talking about voodoo poles, which is a phrase <laughs> I'd forgotten and I quite like, um, which is basically about the kind of convenient samples you tend to get when you know a, a newspaper with a particular political leaning does a poll of its readers, or a radio station, again, with a particular demographic does a poll. Uh, let's put something on Twitter and see what people think about this. If anything, you know, since the book was published, that is an effect which has is, is, yeah, wildly uh, multiplied with the kind of, A, with social media, and B, with the, the kind of increasing tribalism, really, of, of, of so much of society. Yeah. And, um, and I think that's a really good example of people, it's dangerous, isn't it? Mm. Where, where, because it's a number, people assume it's a fact. A number with a lot of sample size behind it. So, a poll of 3,000 of our readers. Now, they all happen to share the same opinion, but, but yeah, it's 3,000 people. Yeah, and that is dangerous. Mm. That really is, is, is dangerous. And it is difficult, even on the most professional level, when you look at the, the, um, the, the recent general elections we've had, how far on the pollsters who do this for a living and are, you know, and are really into sampling, sample control, all the right things, they can still still get it wrong. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So, in terms of um, um, sampling, where should we start? Should we start talking a little bit about measurement, measurement error or...? So we should probably talk about... Yeah, so the, the chapter talks about um, two types of error. It talks about systematic error and, and random error, um, yeah. which y you might also see um, called sort of various other uh, other names. Uh, um, so measurement error is, it, yeah. is, is really a type of, of, of kind of random uh, error, which which is fairly easy to understand and correct for. Yeah. So if we sample properly and have a big enough sample size, that's not too much of a problem. I think systematic error is a much more interesting challenge. Why is that? Because the stats won't fix it for you. 
Um, so the voodoo polls, for example, are a good instance of lots of systematic error, as yeah. in we're talking to people who are not representative of, of the whole population. Yeah. Actually, with 3,000 people, there isn't very much measurement error. We're very accurately yeah. measuring the views of this group of people <laughs> who are not the whole population. Yeah. You can't just throw numbers at it. Mm. It's design and survey design. And it, you know, the statistical terminology there is about reliability and validity, um, yeah. which is a phrase you may come across you know, in the wild. Reliability is how consistently you're going to get the same number. Validity is, uh, is it the right number, essentially? Yeah. In one of the seminars, we tend to use the, th the phrase, the three R's, you know, it needs to be random, representative, and robust. Mm -hmm. It needs to be large, you know, it, it, it needs to be large enough. And I think when I was talking about being simple, I think people get that. It's then getting into what each of them means and mm -hmm. what you need to do each of them for a customer satisfaction survey, which is different to other surveys and where you might need different size samples to get different, to get more reliability. Well, the, the real benefit you have when you're doing a customer survey is that for a lot of, not everyone, but for a lot of people, you have a, a complete list of the population. You, you know yeah. who most of your, or all of your customers are. Um, there are obviously exceptions to that. It's much more difficult for retailers, for example, but, but if, for the sake of argument, you're a bank, yeah. you have a very good list of who all your customers are, you probably have fairly good contact details for them, yeah. you're starting in the best possible place to start from to do good yeah. sampling. Yeah, probably know the demographics as well that you might want to sample against mm. as, um, as well. Yeah. Yeah, no, and this is an interesting question that the, 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 the chapter, I think, does quite a good job of unpacking. Random sounds easy, doesn't it? You pick people at random. And there's some technical questions about how do you, just mechanically, how do you yeah. do that? But then you start getting into questions that are a bit more nuanced, such as, let's say it's a business-to-business -business relationship. Some of our customers are more important than other customers. So yeah. if we pick from our customer list at random, we end up with an awful lot of low-value accounts and yeah. actually only one of our key accounts. That, that seems a bit strange. It's intuitively wrong, isn't it? It's, it's just obviously wrong. Yeah. So obviously you don't want a simple random sample in that situation. And there are, there are comparable situations um, outside of the B2B world. So for, for example, if you are a local authority and you want to make sure that you're adequately representing the views of um, minority people, yeah. By definition, yeah. there's not very many minority people, yeah. so you're going to end up with only a handful in, in, a, yeah. in a simple random sample. So you, you need to do something called oversampling yeah. to make sure you get enough of those. Um, and actually, the B2B situation is very sim similar. Yeah. You're oversampling uh, the people that you know are sort of numerically relatively rare, but for some reason theoretically important. Yeah, absolutely. Ab absolutely. So what sort of um, guidelines do you give clients when they sort of get to this moment of, okay, who are we going to interview? Mm. What, 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 what sort of conversations do you have with them? Well, I think, to me, we need to work backwards from the reporting. So who, who are you going to want to know the opinions of? How are you, yeah. are you going to, that's an awful sentence. Yes. How do you want to break <laughs> down these results? Do you want to report by branch, by region, yeah. dot, dot, dot. Yeah. Um, by customer demographics, whatever it is. Once you know that, then you, then you know where we need a reliable sample of people yeah. in order to give you a robust result at that yeah. level. And then you can sort of work upwards to your overall sample rather than trying to yeah. say we need a thousand overall and break it down. Yeah. 
I sometimes get clients to visualize it because at the beginning of a survey process, they often want lots of different things or are quite sure what they, what they want. And I, I, I say, you know, really in the results presentation that we're going to do to your board, you know, probably second or third slide in is going to be, this is who we've interviewed. And mm. there's going to be some demographics, some pie charts, some percentages. What does that need to look like? So everyone in the room, when we pass that slide goes, yeah, that looks like our customer base. I'm now going to believe mm. the rest of the presentation. And I think that's a really good way of thinking about it because it cuts through a lot of, well, yeah, we need our big customers represented. We've got to make sure we've got these people in. Our procurement really matters. Or or we've got to make sure that this minority are represented fully. And that's quite a good way, I think, of cutting through the discussion because what are the three or four things you need to say, yeah, I'm going to believe this because it is representative. Yeah, so for that R of... Of, is it representative? We need to think about, absolutely, when, when we present the results back, is it going to look like it's right? Is it going to ad- adequately represent the opinions of, of people yeah. whose opinions matter to us? Uh, and sometimes, to tie those things together, you may need to do weighting, which the, the chapter doesn't really touch on yeah. weighting. Um, it's something that I would avoid touching on if you possibly can, because it's, it introduces a whole set of analytical challenges. But it, it is something we need to address. And you know, as a research agency, it's something we have to deal with quite a lot. Yeah. Um, what weighting allows you to do is be relatively, it's sort of maximize sensible field work and the yeah. realities of data collection, and also being able to report a result that is robust and accurate yeah. at the individual level, at the, sub, you know, the subgroup level, and also kind of fairly represents your overall performance. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, weightings can cause a whole nightmare, particularly if weightings alter and alter frequently. That's mm. really, I think where they don't alter so much, because you inevitably start looking at change. And every time you look at any change, when you've got weightings, the first question, is it real change or is it weighting change? Mm. Um, and, you know, that can just be a bit of a deflection over doing real change. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it can be uh, it can be a nightmare. Ask me about Simpson's paradox at, at some point, but let's not get into it uh, today. <laughs> um, the, the other thing that that I think the chapter does a good job of is particularly focusing on the B two B side, tying together the idea of you know what we sometimes call Pareto sampling. So yeah. you know, essentially giving your key accounts more sample and your relatively low value accounts less sample. And how that kind of ties in with this idea of the decision-making unit. So yeah. within each key account, there'll be five, six people that, that matter to you as a customer. Um, and that kind of, theoretically, it's really nice to represent these different views. And pragmatically means that you may only have 10 key accounts, but you've probably got 80 people that you need to speak yeah. to. Uh, and that, you know, that, that gives you the sample size you need there. And gives you let me not use the word accuracy though it is the right word you need to know all the views of those different stakeholders which is different in the b2c where it's really only one decision maker it is that individual but in a business relationship there are those what's the purchaser after what's the technical guy after what's the user after what's the commissioner after and it's important they all are satisfied but they all have different degrees of influence, so it needs to cover that full decision-making unit for it to be accurate, if 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 if, if I use that word. Yeah, I think it's that's the population, isn't it? The population Absolute, covers absolutely. all those different yeah. types of view. 
Yeah. Yeah. Not just the buyer. And that exactly. can often be a bit more challenging for B2B. Whereas you say banks have everyone's name. Some B2B organisations will have the purchaser or the main point of contact. Mm. But there's other people in that whose information and position they, they need to know too. The other sort of big question then about the sample is, and you've touched on this a little bit already, is what sample size do I need? Uh, and the chapter makes the point that, that really it's the absolute size of the sample that matters, not the proportion it is of your customers, um, which, which isn't strictly true <laughs> in, in theory, although in practice it, it almost always is. I think it's the most, sorry to interrupt, it's the most common question I think I get asked. How many people do we need to interview for mm. this to be reliable? And there are different ways to answer that question. So the, the, the simple version is 200, <laughs> because that's what we give people as a rule of thumb. Um, the, the complicated version is, it depends. So broadly speaking, there is a direct relationship between sample size and your margin of error. Yeah. Um, and it's a diminishing returns relationship. So if you speak to every single person in the population, there's no margin of error. If you speak to five people, there's a massive margin of error. Yeah. But you have to quadruple your sample size to halve the margin of error. So yeah. there's a, a curve relationship between those two extremes. Yeah. And sometimes I find that quite interesting because that question comes usually when there isn't a big sample size. And well, you know, we've only got 20 customers and we've got two people, we've only got 40 people. And there's a fear that that can't be reliable because 40 is a really small, small number. And then when you point out, well, actually, let's say we interview all them, you've got a full census. That is perfect research. And you can see, oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and, and it's this misunderstanding of, of the stats, yeah. you know, sometimes where, you know, of course, you're right. Absolute number drives reliability and variation in that, which I guess we'll come to in a moment. But that, actually, I can do a full census. Boy, mm. that sounds real. Well, that is really good. It's the if best you, research. If you can achieve a census, then yeah. great, yeah. Yeah, and it is probably worth just putting in brackets that if, if your heart's sinking because you only have 60 customers, you can still get, to your point, very accurate re uh, results if you speak to most of them. Yeah. Um, so there is a, a statistical kind of... I was going to say trick, it's not a trick, but there is a, a statistical correction known as the finite population correction, which allows you to adjust your margins of error when your sample size is very close to the whole population. Yeah. Uh, it makes much less difference than most people intuitively expect it to. Um, so, for example, 100 out of 200 is very nearly the same reliability as 100 out of everyone in the universe. Yeah. It, it makes much less difference yeah. than, you, than you think it will. And I think that's an important point because sometimes people look at the sample sizes and think that can't be enough. Mm. And we're saying, oh, well, actually, if you get to 200, you know, 50 for a subgroup will give you a pretty reliable, robust indication. And one of the things I think to, to realise as well is this is customer research. So already there's a, a bit of a skew there. People are customers. So whilst not all customers will like you, <laughs> you know, the chances are most do think something favourably about you, otherwise they wouldn't be a customer of yours, they'd be a customer of someone else's. So that positive skew actually means, I don't think you, you, you need such a large sample size you do for some research where the variation mm -hmm. is black to white and all the shades in between. It, 
you know, and we'll get a little bit later on in terms of having the right measurement because you've got to be able to cut into that 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 you know that skew with 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 enough precision but yeah the sample sizes are a lot less than i think people think to 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 get to get something they can be i think you know again what often ends up driving it in practice and, and what should drive it is that sort of bottom-up logic yeah. of well actually you know fine 200 reliable overall but i need a, a result for every you know agent yeah so so that, that ends up being massive yeah um, and that's where the really big sample sizes come yeah. from that kind of i need the granular level of detail to be reliable too yeah and that's where you come across very short surveys or perhaps telephone surveys after you've interacted with an organization just asking one question which they tend to know is you know the killer question or the question that really makes a, a difference but they but they want the results have got to go to so many people that it's a very sort of cost effective way of, of, yeah. of doing it like that yeah i think the other thing that that um i think sometimes um, helps people get 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 their mind on this absolute number drives reliability but also the variation within that and how i explain that is if we've got a a sample that we're using to represent the whole population and let's say the average score or let of that sample was 80 if everyone in that sample had scored 80, you can say with a real degree of confidence that's what the whole population thinks because there was no variation. Everyone ended up with a score of 80. Whereas if half our sample scored 90 and the other half scored 70, again, you'd be saying the average is 80, but with a much less confidence because of the variation that you get the responses in that sort of like the standard deviation to you know you know you know to some degree and i think that helps people get an understanding because mm. the variation that you're getting drives reliability i love talking to stats about you <laughs> um yeah i i yeah I think, you know, a like good that. way of thinking about it a good way of thinking about it is how surprised are you you know yeah. it, if, if someone comes along and suddenly gives you a score of one out of ten is that a shock or is it not? I think that that's a good way of thinking about it. Or you know, likewise, if, if it's a sort of yes or no question, are you pretty confident someone's going to say yes, or are you? It, it, are you yeah. Do you have no idea? You know, Brexit would be a good example. If you stop the random person on the street, are they leave or remain? Who knows? Yeah. yeah. I think one of the other the, the, the stories or, or, or one of the examples that we tend to use and. I think it was, well, it, it, the first time I heard it was from one of our esteemed colleagues, um, Jim Alexander, when we were talking about this, where, when we were talking about the percent or the response rate, how many people, you know, what percentage have you got to get for it to be reliable? And again, a bit of a red herring if we think about what, what you know, what drives reliability. Yeah, you ask the question, is seawater salty? And you go, of course, seawater salty, Jim. Are you sure? Of course it is. What percent of the world's oceans have you drunk to come to the conclusion that all seawater is salty. 5%, 10%, well, no, point, no, 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 1%. So how do you know it is? And it's because you get the same taste in your mouth every time. The answer is consistently, it tastes salty. And that way you can say, actually, I believe it all is. We're not gonna find a pocket of seawater except the Dead Sea, that, um, which is really salty. Um, and I think that's quite a good way of, of, of thinking, the same way that you know fire is hot, because you get the same result every time. Um, you, you're putting your eyes... I don't, I don't really like that example, to be honest. Okay, why not? Um, so I think a better analogy would be, 
if you want to know how you know what the salinity of seawater on average is you wouldn't have to measure the whole of all the world's oceans you could draw appropriate samples in a cup and average the salinity across all of those that's what we're really doing with with you know yeah. survey data i don't think is the sea salty is a, is an appropriate analogy really okay Wake, welcome to TLF Marine Podcast number one. <laughs> yeah. Well, both of us, ironically, are, are hugely out of our depth. <laughs> hey, I thought it was my role to do the poor Sorry. jokes. <laughs> so, in terms of reliability, robustness, randomness is probably just worth touching, yeah, <laughs> touching on, which often gets a little bit you know, overlooked. Just tell us a bit, you know, why can't a pick who's interviewed? Well, um, there's a few things to get at. So there's the sort of cherry picking uh, aspect of that. So you are obviously introducing a systematic yeah. bias there, right? you know, a, a, a problem of validity um, because you're skewing it towards and it, even, even if you're doing it that with the right intention, so you, you know, some people will cherry pick the customers they think are going to give us good scores, that's obviously going to yeah. bias the result. But even if you cherry pick people who, for example, have lots of interesting things to say, yeah. that's going to introduce a bias. You just don't quite know yeah. what it is. Yeah. And this relates actually to the issue of non-response bias as well. Uh, whenever we get a low response rate, and this is in a way the elephant in the room whenever you're doing a, a satisfaction survey, yeah. whatever the sample size you've achieved, what was the response rate to get that? If there's a lot of non-response, well, the more non-response you have, the more potential there is for, again, there to be a systematic error where the people who take part are systematically different from the people who don't take part. How do you get around that, though? Because you don't know what you don't know, and you, that's... Yeah, you, you, short answer is you can't. Okay. You can, there are things people have done to try and address that. So, for example, let's say you're using some sort of self-completion method, whether it's yeah. postal or web. You can use an interview method, whether it's phoning up or face-to-face, -to, -face, to try and get hold of some of the people who hadn't initially responded yeah. and see if their responses are systematically different or not. That's one approach people have used. Um, it doesn't quite fully address it, but it, it helps. Yes. I think the short answer is, acknowledge that response rate is an issue and do your best to maximise it. Yeah. And that's probably a topic for another podcast, but, yeah. but we tend to say the best way to maximise response rates is A, make the survey experience as pleasant as possible, yeah. and B, do something with the results. Yeah. Questionnaire relevant, the right length, all those sort of things. Communicate that you're doing the survey before, communicate after. And it's, I think it's fair to say, with some of us, absolutely fair to say, because it's accurate, that some of our longer standing clients, you have seen the response rates go up over time mm. because everyone's doing that little equation. Is it worth me spending five minutes of my life? Is this going to make a difference? And when people think, well, it, yeah, actually it is because they did something or they yeah. told me they did something or whatever, I'll give that five minutes of my life because there's something in it for, you know, for me. I agree. I, th I think survey fatigue is a bit of a red herring. It's... it's uh, wasting my time fatigue. Yeah, absolutely. That, that's a really, that, you know, that's a really, really good way of putting it. Just to go off at a slight tangent, uh, I was thinking about this when you were talking about, you know, you know, the, the Pareto effect and the decision-making unit. 
I've seen some really good research, in fact, we've done some really good research, where different data collection methodologies have been used for different people in the decision-making unit. These customers are really important. I want someone to go and visit them face-to-face, or I want them telephone interviewed. These customers are less important. Um, they can get sent a web survey. Mm. What's your sort of view on, you know, on that in terms of introducing oh, yeah. another element? In, yeah, I mean, it... it there's little question that it, it must introduce at least the possibility of a method effect. Yes. Um, and there is quite a lot of literature around method effects. Um, and broadly speaking, people seem to give more positive results in interviewer-based methods and more negative results in self-completion methods. Yeah. Um, it slightly depends who's asking the questions. It slightly depends what the questions are about and, and, and yeah. so on. I think you can minimise method effects. Um, the more you're doing sort of event-driven research, the more you can anchor it in specific, you know, concrete memories, the less strong those effects are, I think. And you, you then have to sort of balance, you know, the theoretical potential of, of this method bias against the importance of, of again, making it a, the right experience for customers. Yes. So pragmatically, I, I actually am quite in favour of a kind of hybrid approach. Yes. Even though there is that potential yeah. danger of the method effect. Yeah. I think it ultimately makes the research more actionable in the right way with the right people, which is fundamentally what you know what it's what it's about. Yeah. Um, well, we're both still awake. Anything else on sampling? No, I'm, I'm surprised actually quite how long we've managed to spend talking about sampling. Well, I said, given we're a research agency, perhaps not surprised. Uh, but yeah, hopefully that's been interesting uh, for you as, as well as kind of preoccupying for us. Yeah. So we'll be back again to do the next chapter, which is we actually get onto collecting the data. Right questions, right people, right way. So we'll be talking about collecting the data next time. Thanks very much for listening. If you're using iTunes, please subscribe, rate and review us. Uh, and if you want to get in touch, you can find us on Twitter at TLF Research or at tlfresearch.com. Thanks a lot, everyone.